Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of this uh, as-of-yet-unnamed podcast series on the representation of the American Civil War in board games and specifically in war games. My name is Alexandre Fontaine-Rousseau, and I am here substituting for Fred Serval because for some reason it seems that this podcast has to be hosted by some guy with a French accent. It doesn't matter what kind of French accent, as long as there's an accent, it looks like it will be all right with the stars of this show. So uh, without much further ado, uh, to talk about the American Civil War, let me introduce to you uh, two medieval historians, uh, Stuart Ellish Gorman, uh, better known as the Professor of Crossbows himself, and uh, Pierre Vagnard-Jones. Hi, guys. Hey. Hello. Hello. I'd say thanks for having us, but it's technically our show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I'm not sure how this works, but I'm sort of like the host to your own party. So uh, before we start, maybe just a word of uh, warning to everyone listening as to the contents of this series. As we are talking about the American Civil War, topics such as slavery, war crimes, genocide, segregation, as well as modern hate crimes are likely to come up at some point during various episodes. We will be addressing these issues with as much serious and respect as possible, obviously, but uh, be forewarned. Uh, but it's also a podcast about uh, war games. A lot of them actually, as ACW, might very well be the most common topic in war gaming right there after World War II. And so somehow, Stuart, you basically convinced Pierre to play a lot. And I do mean a lot of these games, even though from what I gather, Pierre really doesn't know a whole lot about the conflict. Stuart, maybe you could start by uh, telling us what this whole project is about, uh, where it originated from, and maybe tell us tell us a bit more about like the highly scientific process behind it. So this started off kind of I so a bit of personal background. I'm originally I live in Ireland now, but I'm originally from Virginia in the American South. My dad was a big Civil War buff, so I grew up going to U.S. Civil War battlefields and kind of just really steeped in that culture and vibe and that history of being very present. And so when I got really into wargaming recently and last, I got kind of back into it in a big way last year, I knew that it was somewhat inevitable that I would, I would get sucked into American Civil War games. But one of the things I thought was an interesting avenue to explore is the aspect of the lost cause in the American mm. Civil War. And I, I won't give like a whole history of what the lost cause is, but people who don't know, the lost cause is, you could call it a historiographical trend, you could call it a conspiracy theory, you could call it a lot of very awful things. It is it is a horrible part of un our memory of the American Civil War that was a deliberate reconstruction of the memory of the war done by primarily ex-Confederates and people with ex-Confederate sympathies in the wake of the war, and it dominated for much of the early 20th century. So it, it rejects the idea that the American Civil War is about slavery. It makes it says it's about states' rights, which is probably the bit that most people have heard, but it has a lot more far-reaching implications to how we understand the war. Things about commemorating uh, American Civil War Confederate veterans and things like currently the huge debates in, the Ameri in America about uh, statues for Confederate veterans and things like that is very rooted in the lost causes, what put those statues up in the first place and was primarily a tool used for putting in Jim Crow segregation. So it's a very live part of our understanding of the war. And I think it's an interesting thing to explore how it comes through in war games, like, cause it's something you can't, it was very mainstream for a very long time. It's exploration in cinema and literature has been documented this is a much more niche little hobby, but it's also the one I write about. So I thought that was an interesting avenue to explore. Uh, and I'm going to be writing about, I have a blog, I'll be writing articles on that. But before I can really tackle something that big, I have to play some American Civil War games. And I'd only played, I think, like three or four for this. So uh, I would like to say at this point that Pierre willingly agreed to this. And no matter what he tells you in 12 episodes time... <laughs> He signed up for this <laughs> yeah. as a willing participant. Uh, so we're playing a bunch like of a, games. With a waiver and everything, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah he has a, I signed a few things, but yeah. <laughs> you should have read the whole thing through, right? <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, definitely, there was no crossbows involved or threats. Don't, don't, it was fine. All yeah, controlled F to find crossbows. So, yeah. <laughs> so we kind of wanted to play a bunch of games. Now, as I said, there's way too many American Civil War games, so we can't play all of them. So I have this list, and the list, I keep adding games to the list, but I kind of wanted to do a sampling of the major events of the war and the chronology of the war. So we're playing 
roughly chronologically through major battles, trying to sample major systems and various famous designers, leaning a bit more towards newer designs. Although, as we'll see in this episode, we've played some very old ones as well. Uh, but I think it's a bit more interesting to see where the hobby is in the last decade than where the hobby was in the 70s, necessarily. Although it so, can be interesting, actually. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, we're, ha- we're having a bit of that. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. But but not play. I'm not going to play through like the entire SPI ACW backlog. <laughs> You're not a real wargamer then? <laughs> no. no, it's real. It's a it's fake wargamer research project. So in this podcast is a way for us to, to talk about the games as we play them and, and for Pierre to be involved. I'm writing, I'll write a bit about my blog, I've written views about them, but I think it's also interesting to hear what Pierre thinks and what his experience particularly, because uh, as I said, I grew up in the South around it, surrounded by American Civil War culture, I was taught the lost cause in school and then hopefully untaught it later in school, which was a real blessing. But uh, Pierre doesn't have that background at all. No. And I think that's an interesting aspect. And I thought it'd be interesting to know what, what do you guys know about the American Civil War going into this? Because this is a, a project. I don't mean this is a way to like shame your ignorance, but more that this is a project about the American Civil War and our understanding of it. And I think before we spend a long time playing games about it it's interesting to know like what do people know about it absolutely and and i think that's what drew me to it a lot because as you say i i don't come from america i don't come from the american south i come from the south of england which is a bit of a different sort of like it is definitely a different experience because i i I didn't grow up with anything to do remotely about, about the american civil war i mean i barely know anything about the english civil war so it, it it's great to sort of tackle a subject that I know barely th- anything about because I'm really into wargaming, really into Napoleonics and medieval wargaming. Um, so the American Civil War is that sort of bit in the middle of them that, that I, I've got really hardly any, any experience about, but has a lot of human stories in it. I think we're going to touch on it a lot, but... I mean, taking it from Manassas specifically, I mean, every, every counter has a name, every general is known. There's stories about every single general. Whilst we played the game, uh, Stuart would say like, oh, this guy, yeah, this guy's the, the person who did this in three years. You know, he's going to die. He's going to die soon, you know? And I'm like, okay, cool. I know, I know nothing about this. But I'm keen to come at it from that lens. I think the, the only thing, and I didn't even think about this until a couple of months ago, um, it, that, that I know about the American Civil War is that I used to read the Tunique Bleu magazines when I was little, uh, the French magazines. I haven't read them in years. I, I read the the one about Manassas, about Bull Run, the other day because I found it at my, my parents' house. Um, and it's great. doesn't talk about the battle, how it really went yeah. at all. Yeah, um, for, for people it, outside of the French culture, I mean, it's a, it's a comic book about the, the American Civil War. It's set yeah, in the Civil War, yeah. yeah. It's it, and it's fascinating to, to see it from that lens, but you're not really seeing the civil war from that lens. And I think that's that, that that's what I want to see. I want to see what conclusions I take from from how it's portrayed from this. Because I, I think another interesting thing is that I'm coming at it from the lens of someone who is having Stuart tell me about it. You know, mm-hmm. like from the beginning, I am well aware of the lost cause and everything, and even the damage it's done, something like that. You know, Stuart always always mentions every single thing that comes up that is mildly sort of problematic or worrisome about titles, um, uh, stories that happen in the games, that sort of thing. But so it'll it'll be interesting to see where this goes, I think. Yeah, I really enjoy like this dynamic of someone not knowing about it and then someone being really interested about it. And I guess it's it's also like myself, I don't know much about the American Civil War either. I think like my answer would be that I know what most people know about it. Yeah, and I I feel like it's it's interesting because when you talk to Americans, it's such an important topic, and I think that since the war gaming hobby really like developed in the United States, it's like linked to it in like a very intense way. Which like as an outsider, I've always like going in, I was like, people really want to play a lot of games about this. That's yeah. that's kind of surprising. But yeah, so I, the, that outsider perspective is really welcome, I think. One thing that's really interesting about the kind of birth of Wargaming, as you mentioned, is that I mean, Wargaming really comes to be in the 60s and into the 70s in America. And of course, the 1960s, or of course, the Civil Rights Movement, and the centenary of the American Civil War. So it's really fresh on people's minds at the birth of Wargaming. And I think you can really see that in the number of games that come out of that early wave is that like everyone's thinking about it and there's a huge amount of revisiting it. And that's actually kind of when the lost cause begins to crumble. 
is around the centenary and it doesn't completely collapse. I mean, we, we see it in the opposition to civil rights throughout the movement and afterwards and still exists to some degree and huge amounts of the Confederate monuments are from that era. But you begin to see it erode and it kind of already fallen apart of it in academia, but you begin to see it penetrate into the popular culture of America throughout the 70s and 80s. And I think we'll talk a bit about that as we play some of these games. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the birth of wargaming because it basically is birthed by a civil war game, Gettysburg by uh, Charles S. Roberts. So it's it's interesting that it really is the topic that really gives birth to the whole hobby. Uh, so yeah, we have a yeah. first game uh, for this uh, as of yet unnamed uh, series, and it's uh, Manassas, a war game of the first Battle of Bull Run by Rick Britton. Can you tell us a bit more about that game specifically? So. First of all, people who may listen to the Homo Lens podcast know that I am often called upon to give a brief historical summary of the game we're yeah. talking about in <laughs> Club de Joux. I will not be summarizing the American Civil War here, but instead I thought I would talk a little bit about how we get to Manassas for people who don't know. So Manassas is generally considered the first major battle of the American Civil War, and that kind of made it feel appropriate as the beginning of this series, is play a classic Manassas game. So Manassas takes place in 1861. So in November 1860, Abraham Lincoln is elected president of the United States. Uh, he does not take office until the 4th of March 1861 due to that fun quirk of how American democracy works, which people are probably familiar with, but it was even longer back then because now it happens you know, like in February, but the, back then, March. So then basically a bunch of Southern states decide that they're going to secede from the Union because they're convinced that Lincoln is going to end slavery. Uh, and the current sitting president, President Buchanan, does absolutely nothing in this time frame. South Carolina is the first state to go. They actually go in 1860. They secede on the 20th of December, 1860. Uh, they are followed in January and February, 61, by Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas. So this is our main cohort of the South. The key question coming from this point now is, do the border states secede? So the border states are, as you might guess, the states on the border. So the states that generally defined as having slavery, but being in the in the upper South. So Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, North Carolina, Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, and Missouri are the states that are in question. And they hold a lot of the industry of the South. So it's pretty crucial that they, a lot of the industry and a lot of the white population, actually, because some of those deep Southern states are mostly slaves. So they can't really fight a war effectively Uh, so there's a real need for yeah. white people in industry to join. And so a key point that people probably are aware of is Fort Sumter. Uh, it's 12th of April, 1861. So throughout the kind of lead up to Fort Sumter, there are various armories and things in the South that are seized by seceding states. So the seceding states take over armories and they're either willingly handed over because maybe the people who are garrisoned there defect or They just can't resist them. Uh, in a few cases, some of them managed to actually smuggle arms out in advance of them being without orders because there was no orders coming from the top. Uh, but Fort Sumter is in Charleston Harbor. So Charleston is the largest city in South Carolina. Fort Sumter blocks the harbor and has actually played a key role in previous crises with the city. The General P.T. Beauregard is put in charge of dealing with this problem and the Confederates basically open fire on the fort. And this is the, the powder keg that starts the war. The commanding officer refuses to surrender and he is fired upon. And he doesn't really have the means to resist. There's attempts to resupply him. It doesn't work. And that's kind of the start of the war. And so in April 1861, when things get going, Virginia, Tennessee, Arkansas, and North Carolina all secede. Uh, so they're like the key seceding border states. Virginia is, I mean, I'm going to talk a lot about Virginia because I'm from Virginia, but it's also a fairly crucial part in it. Virginia was the most populous had the most industry and it's very key to the main battlefield of the war as well because they moved the capital of confederacy to richmond which is the capital of virginia which is now modern times it's about a 90 minute drive south of washington dc which is the capital of the union so that's that's kind of the scale we have this huge country and we've got the capitals you know a couple days march from each other frames a lot of how this war goes Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, and Missouri all stay in the Union. There is some early fighting, particularly in Missouri, as there are attempts to set up secessionist governments to bring the state out. And in Missouri in particular, there's like a big enough Union division that they, they manage to sh attack the, the seceding element and drive them from the state. So a few of these states have governments in exile in the Confederacy. Uh, Kentucky stays mostly neutral, which will be something we'll talk about throughout the role of Kentucky in this. And actually part of Virginia will secede from Virginia and become West Virginia during this conflict. And that's where West Virginia is born. But we're kind of in this chaotic period 
uh, when the first battle begins. So the initial stages of the war, there isn't any fighting. And part of that is because the entire U.S. Army at the start of 1861 is 16,000 men. And almost all of them are in the West, in garrisons, in will be Native American territories, way out in kind of isolated pockets. So there's, there's no military. America didn't keep a standing army in this point, even though the Mexican-American War is only like a decade or so before. They built an army immediately, and then they would just collapse it when they were done. So there's this massive ramp up to build armies. Uh, the main general in charge of the Union is General Winfield Scott. Winfield Scott had fought in the War of 1812. He was really old. He was a war hero coming out of the Mexican-American War. He does never go into battle in the American Civil War. He's the overall commander for the start of the war, but he's a desk general because he's like 70. But he goes for a kind of a a strangulation strategy of the South, trying to blockade the main ports and shut down their ability for their economy to function because the South is an exporting cotton economy. But then there's a need to do something. You can't just sit there and wait. So that's where we get First Bull Run. First Bull Run or the Battle of Manassas, the naming of American Civil War battlefields battles is something we'll get into. Some of them have shared names, like Gettysburg is always Gettysburg. But in some cases, there is a Union name and a Confederate name, because the Confederacy would name things after local landmarks or towns, and the Union tended to use a nearby important body of water. So Bull Run is a river that runs through the battlefield. So we're in first, as the name First Bull Run implies, there is a second Bull Run battle. Uh, and Manassas is a nearby town. Now, Manassas is now kind of in greater Washington, D.C. At this time, the city would have been smaller, So, it, but it's really only like two days march outside the city at most. So we're very close to Washington, D.C., which is a big fear at the time. And it is a Union offensive into the South. So it's July, 21st of July, 1861. Also, if you don't know anything about Virginia, it is hot as hell in July. <laughs> So that's how we get to the battle. Now, the game Manassas, designed by Rick Britton, was first published, first printed in 1980 by Iron Crown Enterprises, of all people, more famous for the Middle Earth role-playing system. But Rick Britton was involved in that company and then designed this historical game. I think it's his only historical game. He designed a game on Battle of Five Armies and one other kind of fantasy game. But then again, there wasn't like such a divide between war games and Mm -hmm. role-playing games at this period. And and by the way, I really enjoy your very thorough definition of not giving historical background. It's it's very good. (laughs) (laughs) We got to get, we got to get, we had to cover a lot of ground this time. (laughs) First half 61. So it was perfect. It was perfect. It's the, it's a grand tactical view of the entire battle. The map is enormous. It's this three foot by four foot, two sheets map with actually quite low counter density. And we'll, we'll talk about that, but it was first published in 1980. Yeah. It's very, it was at a second edition in 83, which was just revised rules and slightly uh, modified counters because they got the ability to print on the backs of the counters. It's really old school. Like no part of this design is ever was ever touched by a computer. You know, he clearly hand drew this map and the map is gorgeous because he worked as a cartographer it's a kind of underground masterpiece of a design. Not Apparently, Mark Herman is a huge fan of it. It was a small print run. It hasn't been in print since the 80s. My father bought a copy from him, in the designer, in 1992 because he lived in my hometown uh, when they were kind of already pretty scarce. And that's how I got my physical copy of it, which we needed because the rules aren't online anywhere. We played it on a really good Vassal module, but we needed those rules. So it's... It's a fairly obscure but yeah. really excellent game. And, and I've seen on more than a few people say it's the best game on the battle. And so it was very old school, you know, clearly designed in the 70s, printed in 1980, tactical hex encounter game. Uh, I guess I'll go to Pierre for what Pierre thinks of it first. I really like this game. It's, as you say, like gigantic map, um, but pretty low, low counter density, which means the approaches you can have. And, and also, yeah, the big thing is that you play it from the approach to battle, you know, your, your troops, if you're the union. So I played the union in the, the game we had and Stuart played the Confederates. The union starts basically off the map and throughout the entire game, more reinforcements are streaming in. And I love that because it really lets you sort of tinker with your exact approach you want to take. And because the map is so beautiful, there's so many features in it, something I'm not super used to as a medieval and ancient war gamer. (laughs) They're the the most attractive part of like American Civil War games is just like, those maps are often beautiful and very detailed. But exactly. And and you get interesting decisions from turn one, even though it it took several turns before we had any combat happen. 
any combat whatsoever, you know. I think we yeah. played like a three or two or three hour session to start off with, and we had like our first yeah. fight at the end of that. It was all maneuver. exactly, and it was fascinating, and and there were real decisions to be made because I mean how the the flow of Bull Run goes is. There's a big force in the northeast and a big Union force in the northwest as well, sort of converging. And one of them is trying to cross the river of Bull Run, and the other one has already crossed it further up and is just trying yeah. to race down. So He's doing a big yeah. circling attack. That's so right. the, the battle is, there's this division by under command of Tyler that's at the river. The river is very hard to cross. It yeah. has a bridge and two fords, and there's a big Confederate division south of it guarding the fords, and there's a Union division that has to cross the bridge. And the, the Confederates have put up various wooden barricades at the only bridge to kind of slow down the progress. And then McDowell has trained, I think most of his troops further West and is coming down. And a lot of them uh, have marched like for an entire day by the time they reach the battle. Yeah. Which is why a bunch of the Union troops have worse movement factors. Yeah, and they're super slow. <laughs> but 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 it's but it's on this huge map. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. But I I, I love that. I think the, the biggest thing that I love, and I think it'll be something we bring up again, is the ebb and flow you get um, from the combat, especially. I think once we got into combat, once the battle lines were drawn, twice per turn, as in like per like person's turn, not a backhand for twice per turn, the entire situation would completely change. And it wouldn't feel unearned, if you know what I mean. Like it doesn't feel like yeah. it's completely random, but it really did feel like something interesting was happening constantly. And you really had to minutely change like a, a specific unit's orientation. Otherwise they'll run away and you'll never see them again because the morale rules are brutal, which I'm sure Stuart will jump in here and explain why the morale is brutal. So as I said, the the army at the start of this war is 16,000 men, so they had to recruit huge numbers of troops very quickly. And by 62, it's the Union army is 700,000 men, which is enormous recruitment. But at Bull Run, basically nobody has fought a battle before. There's a very small number of Union regulars who are actually in the army. In theory, like it doesn't really come into the rules of this, but the Confederacy has slightly more veterans from the Mexican-American War. But for the most part, nobody here except for the officers has ever seen combat. Because a lot of the officer class in the American Civil War are from the Mexican-American War. So you kind of see a lot of these names. And a lot of them knew each other, which is an interesting dynamic uh, to the war. So the morale in this is horrible. Like is. units are constantly and, breaking and running away. And for, oh. for context, I mean, the on the tables, the most common result is disruption, which is like the first step of, of losing morale. And with disruption your unit at the beginning of your turn has to run away. You roll a dice and they will run away unless there's a leader behind them or on top of them or cavalry behind them. So it's insane. I mean, most generals have like four or five units underneath them. So you're going to get people just scattering away that you're going to need to run and sort of herd like cats to get back to the front line. And they'll go D6 spaces in a game where the average movement factor is four. (laughs) So it's like... exactly. Just like... They could, like maybe they don't go anywhere and you're like great or maybe yeah. they're just gone you're like oh do I send my leader all the way out there because the leaders are on the cavalry are, are much higher movement because the leaders are on horseback so you can like mm-hmm. send your leader off to that but then there's quite strict command control rules so if you're not in command control you can only move one hex so then it's like oh but if, okay so I could run him after that scattering unit but the next turn none of these guys are going to be in command control and if they get disrupted then they're going to run off and it's going to be infuriating and so <laughs> tough on, choices all the time exactly. I like this but on top of that is the layer of the command structure which I love because it's asymmetrical for me I had I think uh, was it three or four layers I believe of command and control it's so you have McDowell at the top and then I think three different divisions beneath him. So there's Tyler, Hunter, and Heinzelman, although I didn't use Heinzelman as much because he comes on a bit later. And then beneath each of those division headquarters, I have three brigade headquarters. And each troop can be commanded by their brigade leader or their division leader or the army leader. Mm -hmm. So I have quite good command sort of control over my entire army. As a line, if I really think about it hard, which I didn't do a great job of doing, you could theoretically have a pretty nice sort of morale line moving forwards because I've got to attack uphill a lot of the time and that's really not great. Whereas Stuart has, I think, two levels, don't you? Yeah. yeah. Jackson Beauregard and then everyone else has their... The brigades, yeah. and then there's Beauregard and Johnson, who are the overall generals. Yes, so I get two overall yeah. commanders, which is an upside for, for the Confederacy. Yeah. Because the overall yeah. commander has a bigger command control 
and they get a bonus to their rallying rolls, which comes up when you try and rally routed troops, or when your morale gets bad enough, you have to start rallying disrupted troops. Because at the start of the game, disrupted troops, if they're in the same hex as their officer, they just rally, and it's fine. But when you're when enough people have died, then <laughs> suddenly the morale begins to crumble, and like the getting them back in the fight becomes a roll, and so then the, the bonus of the superior officers is better. Uh, so I get two of those, which is great, but then I don't have any other hierarchy besides that. So like Jackson's troops only answer to Jackson or Beauregard or Johnson. And Beauregard or Johnson don't show up for ages. For 10 turns. Yeah. So <laughs> 10, it, yeah. It looks really detailed, but how complex is it like rules-wise? Because it um, seems like with that command structure and everything, it's it, there's a lot. So I think it's, it's one of those games where cons- conceptually you have to sort of grok what they're going for with the command structure it's less sort of that they'll have a thousand pages of rules about the command structure you know and release tiny text or anything it's just it's very well sort of visualized on the sheet the, the aid you have there as well with the command structure the rules wait i mean i don't have the rule book i learned it from from stuart and i think i could probably teach it to someone without even having the rule book with me at this point you know uh, once i've played an entire game um it, it's not a heavy game it really isn't a heavy game, especially for an ACW game. I think that the closest analog to this you could find is probably Great Battles of the American Civil War, which I have a, um, Into the Woods and I've read the rule book. It's a lot more complicated, you know, as in GBACW is a lot more complicated than this, which which sort of bodes well, you know, like it, it's, it's pretty like, well, what did you think, Stuart? Because you had, I think it's pretty, it's, many games the like core this. of it is quite straightforward, like movement and combat. And all of that works fair is fairly simple. There's a few little kind yeah. of weird edge cases. Like we found retreating gets really messy when your lines are kind of in each other's lines. And you're like, oh yeah. God, where do I, re- this unit is like in the middle of your units. Where does he retreat to is not super yeah. clear, but you can just kind of make a decision. Cause like, you know, you kind of can see it's one of two routes and you're not sure which one it should be. You pick one, the entire game doesn't hinge yeah. on that single retreat exactly. logic prevails i mean yeah. logic exactly. prevails I, but there's games. a lot of little chrome in it to keep track of that can be a bit much but i don't think it's i mean not for a war game is it that complicated and i think the hierarchies thing was really confusing in the rule book but then as it so damage is all tracked in secret you have a sheet to mark all your damage on and then that sheet has the hierarchy written on it and when you have that it's super easy to remember or things like when all the units come into play or for the confederacy that had a division from but led by Coke, who was kind of meant to guard the Fords, and he's not allowed to move until certain criteria are met, which was re- really confusing in the rulebook. But then the turn track just tells you these units can move this turn. On this turn, it's like these three units can move, and then on this turn, mm-hmm. these three. Yeah. So like a lot of the the extra bits help you kind of manage that. Things like yeah. the artillery rules are pretty straightforward. The disrupting and routing troops fleeing is pretty straightforward. There are a few bits where like. Like we just didn't try and capture artillery. Like that you can, yes, <laughs> you can destroy your artillery, or you can try and capture it. And the capturing artillery rules are like this is a little, this is a little much. <laughs> just forget the rules you don't like. I mean, yeah. that's another secret yeah. of uh, war gaming. <laughs> also, it doesn't come up that but often because your artillery shouldn't be getting captured. But it, it's overall, I think, for what it is, it's a relatively simple game. If you've played Napoleonic games before, I I've never played a, a Napoleonic game as simple as this one. That's, that, that's my only sort of touchstone, you know, with sort of roughly the same period with guns. Um. <laughs> so, so, so that that map is huge. Uh, sometimes those huge maps they they don't they don't get very much use. Like <laughs> they, you don't use them as much as you should. You're just like there's so much empty space. This one does it like is the map just like impressive for like just to be big or is it like much more like uh, useful and do you have like control over the the strategies that you could so sorry that makes no sense at all right <laughs> no no it makes complete sense and i think overall what we did if you if you visualize the map on on a table in front of you we we used basically a a backward slash of it if you draw a backward slash of through the map we used that relatively thick we used maybe i'd say 30 percent, 40 percent of the map total um but we absolutely could have used more i especially as the union um, there are roads everywhere that really help with your movement. So I could have absolutely sent a couple of divisions sort of down further west, down to the south, rather than sort of concentrating my entire forces down one thing. I, I really think it, it's a game that does, that would benefit from a couple of plays to try wildly different strategies. But I, I don't know, that that's me from from the Union point of view, where I've 
um, coming at it from the attacker's point of view. Of course. You know? Whereas I don't know about the defender's point of view and the Confederates. What, what do you think, Stuart, with the map? Yeah, the I think I think if we really appreciated how long the game was, we would have used yeah. the map very differently. Because I think we had this like yeah. stress of like we have to get these troops into combat immediately, so we tended to just take the most direct. I was routes. flinging them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and like there's a main hill, this Henry House Hill, which was where the worst fighting in the battle was. And you get victory points for controlling that at the end of the battle. So like a huge amount of our fighting was just get the goddamn hill. Mm-hmm. But I think if we had kind of realized just how many turns there are in this game and how long the scope of it is, then suddenly like, oh, let's go, let's send someone flanking down this road. Because if you get in someone's back, it's it's really unpleasant <laughs> for the combat. You, yeah. You're double strength if you're attacking mm-hmm. from behind. Wow. So it becomes very good so that kind of like oh circling around and trying to get into people's sides and do outflanking maneuvers and stuff i think would have been much more a part of our strategy if we had kind of been thinking more like five turns ahead and not maybe two if we were being yeah. generous to ourselves <laughs> that cool me out like that. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, i would say Absolutely. like the furthest corners don't tend to get used too much although we did also scatter some troops across <laughs> the battlefield by the end of it they were just like yeah. fleeing troops yeah, yeah chaos chaos is part of the fun in those 19th century games usually i mean it genuinely is yeah, yeah. absolutely so uh, you said yeah. it was long how long was it oh, oh it was pretty <laughs> it was long. long so we played hours, we played for about 12 yeah. hours yeah. And that was not to the very end of the, like they, they were in theory, I think six more turns that it could have been played for. Now that was playing over Vassal and kind of playing in chunks. And for some time we would be playing like for 90 minutes a week, which was kind of awkward because you, you spend the first like 15 minutes remembering both the rules of the game and what in God's name you were doing. Yeah. Like yeah, strategy wise, no, no, no. <laughs> that's not how it's supposed so, to be played. You're, you're supposed to have like a huge basement where you can fit that yeah. map. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think American you, designers is only for American homes. <laughs> if you if we were like at a convention playing in person for a day, this is playable in one day. But I would say it's. I mean, BGG says it's like a four hour game, and it's not a four hour game. Like absolutely not. But I would say it's probably, once you kind of get it down, like a six to eight hour game. I think you could play it in real time, couldn't you? As yeah. in like following the time track. E- each turn is turns. 15 minutes of real time. With yeah. a timer. And the rule book. <laughs> like chess. <Yeah. laughs> Speed yeah, the rule book yeah. is like, once you get good at it, you should yeah. be able to do this. <laughs> the, the, so The rule book nags you. It's like you yeah. should be able to yeah, do this in says... fifty minutes. You slow <laughs> You idiot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think one term we took it was like for one half one of our turns, like a fifteen minute turn is both players, and we spent like forty minutes yeah. on one of our turns once, and it was like, yep. oh, this is a low point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think another interesting thing with the map is that there are only really four features. I'd say there's Bull Run. There's one of the rivers that comes off Bull Run. What's it called? Young's Branch. Young's Branch. And um, hills and trees. And the map, I, genuinely, anyone listening to this, just look it up on, on BGG. Just look at the map. It's beautiful. There are like two colors or three colors on it. There's the beige of the background, the brown of the hills, and the green of the trees. And it is just so clear, so crisp, mm. and so just nice to look at. And it's so easy to see where like the... The pressure points are you know and it's such an open map such a huge map but you just naturally converge into the middle because of the shape of the hills because of where the roads are because of where you're forced to to sort of fight over because of the rivers and i, I really like that I, I really like that side of things so that was sort of going back to the, the map point from earlier but i think a lot of the, the thing that's really interesting about the game is how naturally it like evokes the history and the main kind of ebb and flow of the battle without putting in specific rules like pierre was the attacker for basically the whole game and i was the defender but nothing in the rule book says the confederacy are in charge of defending it's just like the objective points are closer to me and i get there sooner than he does yeah. uh, i don't even show up sooner than he does i just get there faster yeah. assuming i rush for them as fast as i possibly which yeah, should. the approach as well yeah you don't, which start. I don't have yeah. to yeah yeah, that, it's it's fascinating. That's what I love about a good war game is when history sort of like happens naturally. It's not like forced upon you. You just like look at it afterwards and you're just like, this is how it happened because the design is yeah. effortlessly telling that story. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think the, the best example in this is 
is Jackson's brigade. Is that is that right, Stuart? With uh, with yeah. with so what are they called again? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know ACW history. Um, but basically, Jack, Jackson's brigade holds really well uh, Henry House Hill, and it happened at the end of our game where they were the ones really just holding holding the hill near the very yeah, end. You have you get to a point where they just have to hold on, and that's yeah. where the name Stonewall Jackson yeah. comes from. And, is and, is holding that hill and against all attack. Mechanically, those units are kind of worse than my units who are attacking. My units are almost all 10 strength units at that point, and his are all 7 or 8 strength units. It's just because of the hill. You know, it's because... And, and obviously the hill is taking into account sort of potentially a, a good leader behind them or whatever like like that, but it's it's the little modifiers that really don't stack up too much, that really just, just tell that story wonderfully and that every unit is named that you know whichever every unit is and you can tell that story through the throughout the entire battle i love it i i, I love all of that stuff, sort of stuff and i also really like how they they don't have special rules because yeah. a lot of famous there's a lot of brigades that become very famous in the american civil war and definitely as this series progresses we will meet several of them we will talk about several of them but i mean so the stonewall name is actually originally applied to a brigade they're the stonewall brigade and then it only comes to jackson a bit later and uh, the Valley campaign and kind of after that, when he becomes a very famous commander and initially it's just the, the men under him who get the title for holding. But then we also have the Irish brigade who are a brigade of uh, Irish Americans from New York who are in some of the fiercest fighting throughout the war and become quite famous uh, after the war for their involvement in a number of battles there at first masses as well, our first bull run, but there's no rule. You just have to know which New York division, the Irish brigade yes. is. Otherwise there's nothing in the game to tell you that. And similarly with which which of Stonewall's divisions is, is the Stonewall name of fame and which ones are the other ones, because a lot of brigades get special names throughout the war. And the game is like not interested in giving you that. And none of the commanders are any different. Like there's no, yeah, there's no you know, yeah. Stonewall Jackson is a plus one leader or anything like they're all they're all literally identical in terms of what they do. The only difference is that McDowell, Beauregard and Johnson get a bonus to rallying. And it's strictly because they are the supreme mm-hmm. commander. It is not because they are better. Yeah. And, and all three of them are kind of disasters. We, we've been geeking out about modifiers and CRTs and terrain. and <laughs> But the point of this was to have like a more critical and maybe historical yeah. outlook on the battle. Uh, how does the game uh, approach uh, the topics of American Civil War through maybe the lands of the Lost Cause and stuff like that? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let Stuart feel this one. <laughs> <laughs> of course you will. <laughs> so I think part of that is is what I was getting at without it doesn't have these myth making elements. So there there aren't rules kind of evoking, particularly on the Confederacy side, you know, Stonewall Jackson is generally considered one of the greatest generals of the war. And that's something we can unpick. He's a pillar of the lost cause. There's kind of three figures who are the pillars of the lost cause. There's Robert E. Lee, who is not in this battle, but we will spend a lot of time with Robert E. Lee. There's Jefferson Davis, who's the president of the Confederacy, and there's Stonewall Jackson. Right. Stonewall Jackson is the martyr of the war. He doesn't make it all the way through. We'll talk about him dying later. But he is like a legendary figure. And there's nothing in this game that makes him any different than like Ambrose Burnside's the Union general who gives us the word sideburns. And is that? Yeah, we haven't we haven't talked about uh, outrageous facial air enough in this first episode. Let's (laughs) that's its own episode. Burnside has a checkered career throughout the war. He actually is overall Union commander at one point, and but like nothing in the game is like, oh, we're going to factor in that Burnside is probably a slightly inferior. And none of that. It's like they're all the same. Let the context define how it goes. There's no rules for rebel. The rebel yell, the notorious rebel yell, which is first you first appears in Battle of Manassas. It doesn't lean into the myth mm. of the Confederacy, these, these notions that underpin yeah. the stories that people would tell for generations. Instead, it's like, this is the battle, this is the terrain, this is the circumstances, and I'm going to show you how this kind of battle unfolds in this circumstance. We have untrained troops fighting each other over forests and hills with generals who only kind of know what they're doing because they haven't fought a war in a while, and they're not never with troops who don't know what they're doing to this degree. And the kind of limits of train and artillery supply and morale and all that stuff. So it, it's really interesting how it really doesn't try to buy but, into that aspect. But I think of I it. think an, another interesting point there is that I mean, if you just listen to that without playing the game, I think you you wouldn't be mistaken in thinking it might be a bit a bit dry, you know, and a bit bland. Mm-hmm, right. But, but there are so many nice quirks. I mean, we've mentioned the movement points in the Union 
being smaller. That is reflecting what the situation was. But I think that the quirk that I like the most is the, the uniform colours being different for certain units. And that gives so much character to the game and so much character to the, the situation. Because as Stuart, do correct me if I'm wrong, but at that point early in the war, they didn't have sort of a standardised uh, uniform that they could hand out to everyone because it was scrappy. They were, they were using what they could. So some Union troops were using yeah. were wearing grey and some and vice versa, some Confederates were wearing blue. And some unions were wearing yeah. red with the Zouave outfits. And it's it, it's it's super interesting. And that is reflected. There are some optional optional rules that accentuate that even more that we didn't use, surprise, surprise, but that I absolutely would, I think, next time next time we play. Because I don't think it would add too much weight if you know the game already. But it, it does have those quirks and that, that flavour and that character does really shine despite there not being sort of, as you say, the rebel yell or specific characteristics for, for specific generals and stuff like that. Do you remember some of these uh, optional rules? Because I'm, I'm sort of curious about them. Exploding cannons? No. There's the... <laughs> Yeah, the exploding cannons. If you roll double sixes on your artillery roll, you have to roll on the exploding cannon table to see if one of your guns bursts. <laughs> I like that. I like uh, that. There's, yeah. there's some sim- <laughs> There's the the uniforms one is because so like some Confederate troops were ex like defected from the mm-hmm. Union Army, so they just had Union uniforms right. still, or they looted Union uniforms from arsenals in the South. So Union uniforms were an issue. And side fun etymology fact. A material that was used by Union manufacturers to try and make uniforms faster was a material known as shoddy, and it was so crap, it fell apart easily, and that's why we call crap things shoddy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was this, like, compressed wool material that just didn't work at all, and it eventually became applied to all sorts of insufficient goods supplied to the army. But So some people were just fighting in the wrong color uniforms, and this created confusion, and it's an issue in like, several early Civil War battles where, like, you kind of see people marching at you in blue and you're like, are they, which, yeah, should I which shoot? Division should I shoot? That <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know who, who's who. And then they get too close and they shoot you first. And now you're like, you get horribly messed, ruined. So there's rules. Like there's a chart you roll on where like if unit, if units of the wrong uniform are next to each other, where you see if they actually attack or if there's an advantage for that, I would really like to try. They're more like optional scenarios, but there's a bunch of options for like, if the union troops detrain earlier, so they arrive sooner, but further, like in a more inconvenient spot of the battlefield. So there's a couple options for like, yeah. do you yeah. train further and then you show up later, but at a maybe you're behind the Confederates now? Or do you get off sooner, but now you're actually, instead of being directly north, you're up in the northeast. Maybe you're even on the other side of Bull Run. So now you have to come down and cross. So there's a few alternate scenarios for if the strategy shifted. There's definitely one or two. Oh, there's, a, there's one I like to try that, that adds a forced march system. Because by default, you can only march a certain distance, but this is one where you can, you have a table basically you roll on and you can take step losses potentially for making your troops double time march down the roads, which was a big thing in the American Civil War of like exhausting your troops to make them march faster. And since they're so slow, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 of course. You really want them to get there sooner uh, because the map is huge and you only move like like on a road, you might only move five or six hexes (laughs) at a time. So you've got to get there. And it's... That is really like tense. That yeah. feeling of like, I just get yeah. there faster, you Super jerk. slow but tense is like a flavor of war game that I enjoy a lot. So I'm, as I said, you sell, you're selling it to me pretty well. Uh, so and the game is going to be available. There's going to be a repress, a reprint from Compass, right? So it's possibly supposedly yeah. this year. So it's we'll not see. you're not yeah. yeah right, but you're not talking about a game that you have to track down a two hundred dollar yeah. copy of. Possibly. No, and, and they, they do go for that yeah. money. Like, they're, the second-hand market for these is insane. So, yeah, there, there should be a reprint coming. Uh, I actually got a message from the designer, and he said that he's done pretty much... Like, most of the things are done. They're finalizing the rules, and then it should hopefully be this year. So it's it's in the works anyway, so that's going to be really exciting because yeah, it's a really interesting game, and I think it deserves to be more widely known. So hopefully the reprint is good. I will say, just on kind of interesting Lost Cause things, I think it does a good job at not buying into the myths. It doesn't do a huge amount to kind of deconstruct them. I don't know how much can be done on that at a tactical level. And it's something that I think we'll have to explore as we play more of these is the preponderance of tactical level games and the fact that a huge amount of the issues in the American Civil War are political, mm-hmm. yeah. which are not right. really mapped well onto tactical level. But things like, I mean, huge amounts of the Confederate Army, uh, the supply trains and everything are worked by slaves. The Confederacy used huge numbers of slaves to basically meant that they could 
put most of their soldiers into fighting positions and keep slaves to do all the manual labor. And that's not in the game. And I don't know specifically how well in place that was by Manassas. Mm -hmm. Because again, we're in the chaotic early stages of the war. But certainly that's something we'll have to talk about as we play more of these games, that there is a a huge enslavement element, not just in the Deep South doing a lot of the labor to make the food and the materials necessary, but also like literally dragging the artillery, cooking the dinners, all of that camp, huge amounts of that camp work and more and more of it as the war goes on and they need to send more and more of their remaining men to fight because there's a really limited supply of people from this, of white people prepared to fight in the South. And it's such a complex issue of representation in the context yeah, of a game. It right? is, but, but I mean, touching on that, I, most games these days, at least most, most games that are designed in the last few years covering topics such as this would come with at least some designers' notes uh, or historical notes. Whether mm. they're accurate or not and how they portray it, I don't know. That's an entirely separate debate. But does this one come with designers' notes? I don't have the the box, obviously. I don't have the rules. But are there any histor- is there any historical context to the battle that he gives? Very little. He gives a kind of summary of the chart. There is yeah. a, a really big bibliography in the yeah, book. Yeah, of course. Which yeah. obviously yeah. is all older books because this game was published in 1980. But it is. Uh, he gives kind of a summary of it at the start... And then, yeah, there's about a page's worth of of bibliography at the back. So there's clearly a lot of work gone into it. And then about a page at the front kind of discussing the battle. Yeah. But but it's interesting. But it's a pretty tight package. I mean, the box is really thin, and it just, so it doesn't have like a big. Yeah, it's one of those old style ones, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but designer notes were like a thing, but they weren't usually no. as long back then. So it's interesting that at least as like a really solid bibliography, which I guess is mostly military sources for like order of battle and stuff yeah, I like think that. So I don't know as many of them because I don't know the kind of literature of the the mid century as well as I would know more recent stuff. So it'd be interesting to kind of dig through and see what's there. I think it's a mix of, of secondary material right. and also war memoirs, which are an interesting source for the American Civil War because there's loads of them, but obviously they're all very, you know, Colored. self-absorbed yeah. and trying to preserve your own reputation yeah, of afterwards. Course. And so they make for some really interesting and conflicting reading. Yeah. So that's Manassas. Do you have anything to add about the game? Uh, would you give it like, do you want to rate games in this thing or do you just want to talk in a very mature and serious way about the games that you've uh, you've enjoyed? I don't know. I'm still learning the ropes of this uh, podcast we're inventing as we go. I don't think any of these games have crossbows, so I don't think it would be fair to give them my, my rating for using my traditional system. <laughs> I, really, I really like the game. I think that's, that's my rating. I really, really like the game and yeah. I didn't expect it to. And it's made me really excited for this project as a whole. Obviously, I agreed to it in the first place, so mm. I had some sort of interest. But as I've seen the list of games rising that, that Stuart has put together rising, we're now on, I think the, the latest document he sent me is final list of games version 4.2 or something like that. So right. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's constantly expanding. <laughs> He's very thorough. But, He's very thorough. But I am it, it, after playing it, I have become really excited to carry on with, with this project. And and I'm actually excited about it too because it, as as you as you're doing it chronologically, I mean it's it's one of the first battles, yeah. so it's a great place to start. Like I I haven't played ACW games, so maybe that one could be my first Absolutely. ACW game. You know, it's yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a real surprise how great it was. Yeah. Like I didn't I didn't think it was going to be bad. I'd kind of heard good things about it and stuff, but it was like we picked. It was the logical starting point because I'd been sent this copy by my father. Yeah. Uh, when I heard I was getting into wargaming, he was like, he sent me the copy because my birthday came up. And he was like, here, this is like a game I've had. I've never actually played it. Hopefully you like it. It's like, it's from 1980. It's like first battle, oldest game we have booked. Although we are, we, yeah. we are going to play the Avalon Hill Gettysburg. But like, it's going to be one of the oldest games you yeah. play. So it's a great kind of starting point to something like this is like old school first battle, like really set the tone for like, where do we, where do we begin? But to have it be like genuinely this good, like, Aside from its aesthetic, which is so purely old school, this game could have come out in the last 10 years and still Absolutely. been really impressive from a design perspective. It's a really interesting game. Uh, if you like 
X encounter historical games. I mean, I don't think it's <laughs> for you. I if mean, you don't if like you've that. listened to 50 minutes of of us talking about an X encounter war game, you probably enjoy it at I, I some regard. I don't think we mentioned hexes until now, though. Oh, so that's right. That's turning right. off like, <laughs> oh god, no. <laughs> what is this? I'm listening to a war game. Ah! <laughs> Someone thought we were playing with minis and was like out. One star. One star rating. This. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, t- uh, so thank you guys guys so much it's been really interesting hearing you guys talk about that game and i honestly can't wait to hear about what, what's the next one in the so the next game i'm actually going to take a second to make sure i get the name right yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say that yeah you don't head. you don't really remember like all of the games and the order like uh, i've seen the i've seen the words such similar names that's yeah the, that's yeah, the hard yeah, yeah. part yeah so we're playing Shenandoah Jackson's Valley Campaign from Columbia <laughs> Games. Yeah. yeah. So it's 1862, early 1862, the block. Valley Campaign, which is very famous. Yeah, block game. Block game, yeah. Very famous campaign that makes uh, the reputation of Jackson. This is kind of what, what makes him the legendary figure. So it'll be really interesting to explore. Yeah. It's, yeah, much, should be much, much simpler. Yeah, it's like shorter. Eight-page yeah. eight yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Columbia game. It's from 2011, so it's... For a Columbia game on the more recent end, it's yeah. not like yeah. Bobby Lee and their other Civil War games are from like the 90s. So yeah. it should be really interesting. The map is quite nice. So uh, yeah, excited to get to, to that one. That, that, uh, so people want to play along with us. Yeah. We're going to be playing that. We'll play that one a couple of times. We only played Manassas once because we had plans mm. to play every game multiple times. And then we spent 12 hours playing Manassas and we were like, we'll play this again, but not but not immediately. We need, we need to get it. Maybe with Alexander. With, yeah, yeah, with yeah. all of the rules. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. I'll do the, the yeah, follow-up yeah, episode, exactly. like, because that's yeah. how it's going to work, right? <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, next one is a block game, so it's going to be easier. And yeah, Super looking forward to a game we can maybe finish yeah. in an evening. It's going to be great. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alexander. Um, it was nice speaking to both of you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our as-yet-unnamed podcast. Will we have a name next time? Who knows? Oh.